Welcome to A New and Ancient Story, a show dedicated to the transformation of self and society. We're moving from the story of separation to a new story of interbeing. We explore it all, technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, because the changes that are gathering today will leave no aspect of our world untouched. For deeper engagement with these ideas, join our community at newandancientstory.net. Hello, everybody. Charles Eisenstein again. In this podcast, I've recorded a conversation that I held with a bunch of people at the, I guess you could call it the Kiva Meditation Center of uh, Cynthia Jewers, my friend in Santa Fe. She's there along with a bunch of other people. David Abram, author of The Spell of the Sensuous and Becoming Animal, was present. Originally, it was going to be a conversation with him, but there were so many interesting people there that we just kind of opened it up. Pat McCabe, as well, also known as Woman Stands Shining, her daughter, Lila June Johnston, David Bacon, a few more people that uh, you'll be hearing and that will show up in the description. This is a conversation was a bit long, so we divided it into two parts. I hope you'll enjoy it. Here we are gathered in Cynthia Jewers Kiva, a round room, kind of octagonal as well. Very, very beautiful. Technically not a Kiva, but that? it's affectionately called that and respectfully called that. Yeah. And there's 11 of us here in this circle. We thought it'd be fun to record a conversation. And also, like, I've had people say to me, boy, I'd really like to hear you and David Abram in a room together. So here we are in a room together. This is very much, all of these podcasts are, um, they're not interviews, really, they're conversations. Uh-huh. And so this is a expansion on that. So we'll just see what happens. And so anyway, David Abram, I'll, I will introduce you, though. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't know if I'd like to call you a philosopher or a naturalist, but um, I've read both of your books. You've just written two, right? Uh, two main ones in uh, in English, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, The Spell of the Sensuous and Becoming Animal. Uh, and one thing I appreciate about these books is the exquisite care that you took to write them. Uh, like took you, like, it seems like 10 years, a book, right, to write these. Well, I'm just someone who, um, I don't trust my uh, words unless they're bubbling up out of um, the silence of direct experience. And so, like, having written a first book, there was no way I was just going to set about writing another. I had to fight my way back into um, into... The wordless place, mm-hmm. and hang out there for a while, um, and so, um, so I, I. But yes, I do take a long time writing. Um, <laughs> I'm slow. I'm a slow reader as well. I can't really read faster than I read aloud. Mm-hmm. Um, so things that I enjoy, I tend to read aloud. I'm. I'm. I am. You know, I do craft, craft with words, slowly. Mm-hmm. 
it kind of uh, it inspires me because I'm trying to deprogram myself from habits of productivity and efficiency, which ultimately mm. are habits of scarcity. Mm. And because if time is scarce, you got to make the most of it. And there's only a certain amount of time in your life. So the, if, you, if you do anything slow, then you're getting less done than you could if you did it fast. <laughs> the math is very simple. And that's essentially the math that is uh, destroying the basis of human life on this planet. Yeah. We've become very efficient at producing everything that we can measure at the cost of the things we can't measure or choose not to. So mm-hmm. this is something I've really been coming to in my life, um, wanting to slow down. And our friend Bayo Okomolafe likes to quote an African proverb to that effect. The times are urgent. We must slow down. <laughs> <laughs> Wendell Berry um, recently uh, in conversation um, that I happened to overhear a bit of was speaking of the plight of young people today. And he said it's so, it's so trying because the situation um, that we're in entails a lot of patience. But to be patient in an emergency is a grave trial. That's Wendell's words. And then people will say, well, all this slowing down and patience, that's all very nice, but come on. The world is on fire. And suppose this, this, this building caught on fire, would we just be patient? No, we'd go grab that fire extinguisher. So, I, uh, once gave a talk, you know, where I, where I, um, I talked about that, you know, and, and how we don't have a fire extinguisher big enough to put out the fire in the world right now. In other words, we don't know what to do. The tools that we have that we're familiar with are not enough. And anyway, so after the talk, this guy came up to me and said, um, I'm a firefighter. And he's in this certain guild, this firefighting guild, and their motto is, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Right? Perfect. Right, right. (laughs) So if actual firefighters believe that you need to slow down in an emergency, if we're going to use that metaphor, you know, maybe, maybe, especially when our habits of uh, doing things... (laughs) are at the root of this crisis, so should we just do them even faster? <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's one, th- one, one, thing, one thing that appeals to me about, about your work, too, like this sinking into the sensuous. Mm-hmm. Very inefficient. <laughs> <laughs> but is it? Well, it seems inefficient, but when... But, of course, it depends, I guess, on... on how you measure the efficiency, yeah. you know, it's probably less efficient in producing uh, quantifiable output, but maybe not even that. It's very inefficient at producing chaos <laughs> right. and destruction. Right. That's true. <coughs> yes. Well, uh, I was going to say, I talk about efficiency as something I think about because I feel like uh, this world that has been so indoctrinated into having one way of knowing which is through the intellect, 
And so the intellect, for the intellect, going from point A to point B at top speed is efficiency. And that's and that's a, that's a modality, and that's one that is necessary at times. But what I've been watching is if I feel like he's, like he said, we don't know. Humanity doesn't know. But I think nature knows. Nature has known for a long time. Even even before humanity was here, nature knew. And so when I look at the knowers, and I think, what is their efficiency? And I don't really see very many straight lines at all, period, much less moving from point A to point B at top speed. Mm. So I say, you know, when, when you look at, when I, when I watch ravens in the winter, and they, um, one will get on its back and make a snow angel while the other one watches. And then they both hop up and they both look. (laughs) And then the other one will do the same. And so this is winter for a raven. And so they they must have a lot on their mind in terms of staying warm and food and et cetera, like the rest of us. (laughs) And yet this is efficiency for ravens. Yeah. And so it's telling us something about actual efficiency. So biologists, evolutionary biologists will will uh, contort themselves to try to somehow explain away, uh, explain this behavior uh, in terms of reproductive self-interest and all animal play in terms of, you know, like, so maybe play is, you know, it's practicing skills that will help you survive, or maybe it's a mating display whereby you demonstrate that you have such extreme fitness that you can afford to play, so therefore you're going to attract a mate, like these intellectual contortions. Um, when, like, and that fits it into the paradigm of efficiency again. Like every action in this ideology is honed by a ruthless survival pressure um, so that it will somehow contribute to this um, this 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 self-interested goal. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, so if, so if you if you say, well, is there a scientific reason why the ravens are doing that? For it to count as a scientific reason, generally, when I read this kind of stuff, it will somehow explain it in terms of how it confers a survival advantage. So the basic uh, assumption is that. Life is all about survival, mm-hmm. and when, and or at least surviving to uh, the point where you can pass on right. your reproductive yeah. genes. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, um, life is all about survival, in a different sense. Then life is all about survival, and rushing from point A to point B is not bringing us to survival, nor is scientific observation and explanation of the raven activities. So even by their own standards, they're not proving their theory. Mm -hmm. This is Pat McCabe joining in the conversation here, and many other eloquent voices will certainly uh, pipe up. Uh, I'm still astonished to hear that Pat, that you actually witnessed 
two ravens making snow angels. I can't wait to hear more about that. Um, wow. But the sense of survival that I think that I that I think I hear um, Charles describing as sort of this uh, this backdrop or backbone of. Um, of evolutionary um, biology explanations and sociobiological explanations is a kind of, it seems to me, is it's survival simply for the sake of survival, uh, just to continue for no other reason than to continue. Mm. Whereas the survival that I hear you speaking of, Pat, is... Um, I can't help but feel is survival in order to uh, taste continually of the blessings of this world in order to bless the world in turn and one another. Um, I was in a, uh, a large public debate with E.O. Wilson once at Faneuil Hall in Boston uh, a few weeks after 9-11. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he was the founder of sociobiology, a very brilliant man from whom I've learned many, many things. A worthy adversary, uh, because one of the great, great, um, genetic determinists of our era, although, bless his soul, he seems to be moving away from that now. But I, I did, you know, pose to him at some point in that conversation but, um, it can't it just doesn't seem like it can only be about um, perpetuating your genes um, to make replicas of yourself uh, because that was the bottom line in every argument uh, that he was framing but it seems to me why would anything anyone want to Continue or to perpetuate and make, uh, you know, further instances of myself or something like, unless I was really in love with being here. Unless I, 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 unless I was being fed by some kind of eros in the moment, in the present moment reality of just what is here, the encounter with other beings, other folks, other creatures, other shapes of sensitivity and sentience, um, colors and textures. I mean, the world is so luscious, but that's what is left out of all of the um, um, traditional or conventional biological accounts is the erotic dimension mm. of experience in the depths of the present moment. Mm. Yeah, those are seen as kind of an accident or an epiphenomenon, you know, that mm. is not essential. Right, but I mean, one can right away then ask, well, what else could possibly be the motive for continuing or for surviving? if not that there's something really delicious about 
Delicious. <laughs> yeah, but you're trying to claim that like ravens would make snow angels and stuff rather than just fight for survival all the time. And no one's ever seen ravens make snow angels and stuff like that. It's like ravens get up in the morning and go, what day is it? What time is it? What do we got to do to survive? You, 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 you saw them making snow angels. And you can't fool a raven. You know that. We all know that if we've hung out with a raven for just a few minutes. And that's just so beautiful that they were doing that. Mm. I have another you know. bird story, too, if mm. you're finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, related, maybe could shed light on this, too. Um, one time I was just living in the forest for about three months, a very amazing luxury that I hope I have again, maybe someday. <laughs> and I saw some falcons and they kept flying back and forth, flying back and forth, flying back and forth. And I was like, what are they doing? And I looked up in the tree where they kept flying to and there was a nest and there was all these little falklets <laughs> chirping away and <laughs> hungry. And they were ugly. Really, kind of gruesome looking. <laughs> and yet, this mother falcon, or maybe it was a father falcon, or I guess yeah. their mother and father falcon, flew back and forth and back and forth. And they worked very hard to keep these ugly little things alive. And I thought to myself, wow, if I was them, I might just kind of leave those ugly things and go make some snow angels. <laughs> or, <laughs> or maybe go party, go to the Falcon Bar and hang out. But no, they're so responsible and diligent and dedicated to these things. Why is it that <clears throat> they keep coming back? And then it hit me. Well, all the falcons who partied and left their kids behind, their genes didn't get passed on. Only the falcons who gave a shit survived. <laughs> and only the falcons who had love and compassion, excuse my language, by the way, had love and compassion for these animals, which weren't all that beautiful and didn't really talk to you unless they wanted food. They, they came back to the nest and they came back to the nest and they gave these birds food with such compassion and that this compassion is actually necessary for life to exist. And only those who care about life can actually persist. And that was kind of comforting to me in a way because it showed me that Compassion isn't a frivolous um, epiphenomenon mm. of biology, but that it is, in fact, integral to existence. And that maybe creators set it up that way, because now I get to learn compassion in its deepest sense by having children, because creator made me that way. And I can now have this experience of being so dedicated to something that just cries all the time. <laughs> and so I don't know how that might be related to your Raven story, but I guess the similar point is that compassion is 
is so important and it and it was cleverly woven into the very fabric of of life on earth so maybe the purpose is not survival but is compassion to arrive at some love and compassion and joy and this embodied experience that is so amazing that we human beings have the chance to to play around with uh, mm. like the ravens and oh, so many other animals and creatures that we share this planet with. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was struck with, when you first opened this up, Charles, what came to me there's the 14 precepts of the order of interbeing of Thich Nhat Hanh, one of my great teachers, and this is an early version, but um, the seventh precept starts off, do not lose yourself in dispersion and in your surroundings. Practice mindful breathing to come back to what is happening in the present moment. Be in touch with what is wondrous, refreshing, and healing, both inside and around you. Plant seeds of joy, peace, and understanding in yourself in order to facilitate the work of transformation in the depths of your consciousness. So we were talking about slowing down and stopping, catching our breath, paying attention to what's going on around us, noticing the beauty the joy, the animals, the, the flowers. And what he's also saying here is that being a human being is difficult, especially if we're engaged in wanting to be more aware or compassionate. We often are, um, if we're lucky, you know, asked to transform those um, patterns in ourselves that are contributing to our suffering and the suffering of others. And that work is difficult. And the world is a mess. And what he's saying is, in order to facilitate that difficult work of transformation, we have to plant seeds of joy. We have to stop and 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 pay attention to the beauty that is all around us. Mm-hmm. And that is what gives us the energy to then go back and keep going, you know, in the face of what is so challenging. So, um, and it's interesting because it starts off to (coughs) this thing about losing ourselves in dispersion and how much of our species is lost in dispersion and in our surroundings and caught up in this frenzy in various ways. And, you know, the practice, as Thich Nhat Hanh teaches it, and it is, has been passed down all this time, um, and is embodied in so many other cultural traditions as well, the wisdom traditions of this planet, you know, um, to to just return over and over again to this present moment and to each other 
all our relations. Mm-hmm. Um, and transform those those unhealthy, violent patterns that keep us dispersed and caught up and perpetuating the cycle of suffering. Thank you. I just want to clarify that that's actually what I was saying. Yes. I wasn't. I was. I wasn't saying. It's only about the beauty. I was yes. sincere when I said life is about survival. But in order to be able to survive, this is what, to me, science leaves out, is, is beauty is in that mix. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I say that is because what, what I notice about the scientific methodology and lens is what they've missed in indigenous cultures is our they because what we were expressing was beautiful yes they didn't know it was deeply scientific and practical yes mm-hmm. and that was the clue for it for me because they look at a piece of pottery and go Gosh, these guys are pretty artsy crafty, aren't they? <laughs> you know? But they don't know that this is describing dimensions and universes and cosmologies and relationships that their Hubble telescope might eventually find. Mm-hmm. And so the beauty is what threw them and made them think that while we were very great artists, we weren't scientists, even though we have a track record of sustainability that they are looking for. Of survival. Of survival. (laughs) And so, I guess, the other place, the reason I say that that beauty is, is, is is a part of efficiency. So when you were asking your question, I'm saying, what, the way I would rephrase that is, have we, have we an, a sufficient explanation for the scientific mind that would satisfy the scientific mind? But that doesn't mean it's actually encompassing the whole reality. That's just how the scientific community likes to think about things. But for me, the other evidence about this is that in my community, young people don't want to be here. The young people are beaching themselves mm-hmm. worldwide. Mm-hmm. And that's because we have this idea of efficiency and we tell them what they must do to be efficient and it leaves out of the equation the beauty yeah. and the feeling and the joy and they say, forget it. Yeah. So... In the end, it's turning out not to be efficient in terms of furthering life. So again, by their own measurements, it's not adding up. By the scientific measurements, it's still not adding up. This is reminding me of, of, you know, it wasn't actually even in the West, this knowledge was alive until pretty recently. Um, One piece of evidence for that is that there was no distinction between the fine arts and crafts until just a couple hundred years ago the you know Michelangelo was in the same painters guild as somebody who would paint the outside of a house 
So, so you know, art or, or, or beauty wasn't like this separate realm that was used to decorate yes. the useful. It wasn't about decoration. You know, it, like you said, it was, it was a union of, um, like aesthetics were not a separate category. But there, but, but there was no, but, but there was a union of, of, you know, functionality and aesthetics that, you know, until pretty recently, and I think, um, yeah, I, I understand your point that, I mean, I guess you could look at it, one lens you could look at it is to say, well, um, yes, it is about survival, and we've left out so much from our understanding of how survival happens. Um, or we could even say that that we've created an artificial distinction, maybe in our minds, between beauty, survival, play, mm-hmm. um, all of these categories. When you speak of the way that uh, aesthetics was not a, a separate, separated out dimension for the making of aesthetic things, we have artists, but rather any making had to be pleasing yeah. to the Everyone spirits. Artist. Everyone is yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like also that splitting that happened not all that long ago between <clears throat> chemistry and alchemy going separate ways and astronomy and astrology splitting off mm-hmm. um, and many other fields of endeavor um, where... And, and and this is what a loss this is also to uh, the the beauty side or the felt intuitive side. I can't tell you how many astrologists I've bumped into in my time when I you know wander outside at night with them and I ask about a particular uh, star or group of stars. They have no clue mm-hmm. um, because it's just this uh, arcane uh, field of uh, intuition. Without any um, tunement mm-hmm. by the actualities of our uh, outrageous world um, in its in its weirdness in its inexhaustible weirdness, um, but somehow only what is measurable gets to count as science. Only what is measurable, numerically quantifiable, numerically measurable, and um, and that does seem to have left out what you're calling beauty, what I'm calling eros, but meaning just the same. Yeah. Um, and I can't think of how many activists I know, and I would imagine each of us in this room knows, who are so, um, uh, with, with a great sense of urgency, um, trying to get to a particular future um, and aiming themselves toward a future um, of a particular shape or form. Um, And yet, somehow they're always aiming oneself somewhere else to that future um, holds us within, holds them within this uh, curious oblivion of linear time and the ravens don't inhabit linear time Um, the wolves neither the coyotes neither nor even the storm clouds they're uh, the timing that 
everything other than us two-legged seems to inhabit is is a time that's round and uh, mysteriously, gorgeously round. Um, so I know I I do feel a tremendous sense of urgency in my work, but I am not trying to get to any mentally envisioned future. I'm I'm trying to get back into the present from which I feel like my civilization has estranged me, alienated me from the present moment uh, in its, you know, fierce expansiveness. I'd like to uh, quote David Abram, and it doesn't come from um, any of his books. Uh, it was us two sitting in a grocery, which I won't name, and uh, some years ago I said to you, uh, I love Théan de Chardin, but the idea that everything that rises converges really bothers me. And uh, you looked at me and you said, oh, I think we're all tumbling into each other. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's, well, one thing I wanted to say about getting older is it's very well done by nature. I mean, forgetting things is just fantastic for having a space to be. Uh, it's the same thing as, you know, not seen, not seen as clearly. Uh, you see so much, so much more beauty because everything is so much softer. And, and I think that, that is true of, of so many things that, uh, we have, um, we have made, uh, defaults or diseases uh, when uh, nature does things so exquisitely beautiful and and let's say modern times and science has given me the choice of whether I want to wear the glasses or whether I just want to see everything very softly or rely on one of you to read the signs on the road. <laughs> I'm thinking about this idea of just survival and this deprogramming. I like how you said that about approaching work from a, a slower perspective. And I think in so many ways, just survival has become the norm rather than a flourishing. And that flourishing mm. is often catalyzed by beauty or by nature or by that eros around us, that passion that comes. And I think when I, when I look at the world and things that are going on, we've come to this point with so many people that mere survival is taking us backwards. And people, there's so much hopelessness because of this idea of just surviving. 
And maybe as a species, we can't just survive. We need to be able to flourish. And that, it seems, economics has found an advantage in just merely survival. There's more people, there's more consumers, there's more of all of that, but what's happening to humanity? You know, it seems we're, we're losing that. We're, there's many of us who are on a certain path, but for so many, just being caught up in survival, we're devolving instead of moving forward. And I don't... And it's certainly not um, helping or ensuring our chances for survival. It's rather uh, making our extinction much more likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's two things here. Mm-hmm. One, one is that um, our... This is what, what Pat was pointing at, that our understanding of how the world works is our, meaning the dominant culture, our understanding of how the world works is so deficient that we are mistaken in in what we think is going to enable us to survive. I mean, we see this happening now in geopolitics, where where security, you know, we're doing things in the name of security that are causing greater and greater insecurity. So that's one thing. The other thing that's coming up, though, and maybe this is the same thing, um, this, the, the root of the deficiency is, well, what is it that is doing the surviving? And if we hold ourselves in separation from other beings, then we can believe that my, my, that my survival or my flourishing could happen um, at the, to the detriment and the destruction of other beings, mm-hmm. which is what what the teachings of interbeing are trying to remedy. They're trying to say that that our survival and our flourishing is only as secure as that of all beings. Mm-hmm. And th- it could even be that personal biological survival, um, like you might sacrifice that. You might mm-hmm. sacrifice your life for the sake of the extended self that is all beings. And that would still be, so that act of altruism, of of what looks like a sacrifice from the perspective of separation, that's still actually in the service of survival. When when we understand the self to be greater than the skin-encapsulated ego. Is that, am I being too cerebral here? I'm, I'm... well, getting yeah. a little lost in it, but no, 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 no. Okay. is that clear? Think, yeah, yeah. I think we've come to a point as a species that we have to realize that one group cannot continue to survive at the detriment of others because mm. there's a backlash now. There's a reaction, and with the world really getting smaller and smaller in terms of accessibility and travel. Our survival is at stake by continuing in that way where there's no compassion towards the other. There's a sense of other that we don't care about anymore. And we can't all survive with that kind of a 
perception that there is the other and that we can survive at their detriment or at their livelihood or their not being able to flourish in any way. I have a question for everyone. Um, my mother was saying that the young people don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. And in our town there is a lot of youth suicide. Um, which transcends all races. Like All the kids <laughs> are not happy. And no matter their in- income bracket. Mm-hmm. And that they don't want to be here because we've taught them that the straightest, uh, the fastest way from A to B is a straight line, when maybe that's not true, actually. But if, if we're teaching them that and drilling this efficiency into their minds, and, and now we're talking about the, the issues of surviving at the expense of others and, or vice versa, and we're talking about what we don't want our children to have. Um, what do you think we do want our children to have? And what do you think, Mom, you know, if you see our young people offing themselves left and right, if we didn't drill into their minds that efficiency, efficiency, efficiency is the way to success, you know, what would we do in its stead? And that's for everyone, but what do we want to do, in other words? Mm-hmm. What do we want to pass on? Yeah. I but think it's more about the moment that um, connection, relationship. There really isn't anything else. You know, that if we are present with each other and we're interested and we're curious and want to know what's motivating each other. And I mean, it's about being in the moment. It's about being with each other. And I just think that education and all these things, pressures we put on young people, just interrupt relationships. They can't have relationship with the world. They can't have relationship with mm. each other. They can't have relationship with their parents. There's not time for a relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's coming from a woman who helped her children on a journey of, <coughs> what is it called? Self, self-directed education. Self-directed <laughs> education in which mm-hmm. the young people did not go to school but really followed their hearts their entire upbringing. Right. And that was the most amazing thing about what we did with each other. There were shadows, but <coughs> learning about just being with each other was, like, amazing. Mm-hmm. My kids rebelled by insisting on going to school. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's what that's <laughs> <laughs> like, is it about time you dropped out of school? You know? yeah. Yeah. School. Okay. But see, that's relationship, too. You know? You're still in relationship. But, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> so, a little earlier, um, I think you were saying, David, that you know the two-legged have sort of dropped out of what you were describing as a roundness. You know, that, yeah. And, and I would say that... Uh, 
that that maybe there are still some two-leggeds that operate somewhat or maybe entirely in that place. Mm. And so as someone who was raised in very fierce academics and um, and with a uh, maybe even a deeper pressure to engage the system and come out on top for being a survivor from a people who are a survivor of attempted genocide. So there was even more like, Mm -hmm. show them who Mm -hmm. we are Mm -hmm. in their own system. Mm. Um, uh, And then dropping out of that, (laughs) very radical. um, (laughs) But but what I notice is, so I guess maybe this is a little bit of an answer to your question, Lila, for me is, what I notice is when I came into the ceremony way, of, ceremony way. So I came out of that and started coming back into what maybe was fragmented pieces of the humanity that has known that roundness, um, and just the ease of everybody coming together and focusing on putting the prayer together, the ceremony, and everybody looking the same way, and then the stone soup phenomenon coming on, mm-hmm. and then the, 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 the weeping of the expression in prayer of the beauty of language. Because that beauty of language spoken on behalf of another. I want to tell you, Lila, how spectacular it is to me that you grew up in our town and you were having some of the same difficulties that the young people there have. And you had this tremendous uh, crisis point and you had to make some decisions and what you took it upon yourself to to do for yourself is extraordinary and I'll never be the same because you did that <laughs> even if I wasn't your mother I, would, I wouldn't be so to take the time in community to express those things and the nourishment and the beauty that comes from touching each other that way. Frequently, by modern world standards, <laughs> but every so often, in terms of also um, chopping wood and carrying water to getting it, to making sure it can get done, right? And so we go through the ceremony and, and we go around the circle and people speak this beauty. Because there's something about it that we know is is the root of... I mean, it's, I don't think there's even a motive except to connect and express. But the outcome happens to be a deep 
desire to to keep going, right? And so then that ceremony is ended. And and so in this modern world, that ceremony ends, and we leave that space, and we go back to our job, or wherever we're going to go, and we kind of maybe decide how much or how little of that we'll bring into that space, and then and then someone makes the call, and they say, you know what? We've decided we're going to do it again. At this time and at this place, and a month from now. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, okay. So even in the modern world, there's this small group of people that are progressing back again towards finding that space. But I think about my ancestors, and I think all the time that's what was being <laughs> moved towards you're you're constantly going through these waves of that connection with each other but also with the natural world and in your activities that way and i just think wow so in in that way the young people might also be given a name this is a really powerful thing to be given a name so it's not just like mm-hmm. one person gets a name or some you know the name of president vice president treasurer and secretary mm-hmm. <laughs> and everybody else is just like well maybe next time you know <laughs> like everybody gets their name and their name is saying Lila when you speak something happens and so your name I, I'm not giving you the name. I see that your name is she who carries the wind. And then I come to the next person and and I acknowledge your name and your name. And that's a, that says mm. that the whole community is seeing you, seeing you, and we're acknowledging. Uh, a, or your name might have come from a, a phenomenon that happened to you as you engaged with the natural world. And we all know it happened. And so, therefore, we remember that and we call you by that. And so, to me, that's what I would want for young people. <laughs> I want to name them. <laughs> and I want to keep bringing them back and, and into a circumstance that, com- that compels them to figure out, wow, I'm not that great at chopping wood, but boy, I can do, you know, I can make the prayer ties for this, or I can, you know, they find that place where they're efficient, there's that word, efficient in bringing it, and and so that they can be a part of creating that circumstance where we connect and witness each Mm. other and say, I see what you are. Mm. That's funny. Elizabeth and I got to sit next, we were at Mary Narana's house, and we were just checking in, and, um, she has a little, a new peaky bread house where she's <laughs> teaching the women and girls. And so the first person to check in going counterclockwise was Beata, who's a beautiful poet and really a lovely person. Beata had just made her first peaky bread and the depth of her feeling and expression just got everyone around the table. Cause she, was making this ancient bread for the first time in her life. 
And it was so, you know, making peaky bread is so inefficient. <laughs> you don't get peaky bread mixed. <laughs> it was so powerful to hear Beata just express that, you know. And I was thinking that that's part of where we're at, that at least, at least at Santa Clara and at other places, there is a place to go back to. And they're starting, the young people are starting to go back to that now. They're seeing when Marion did her first peaky bread and all that, now there are a couple of new cornfields in the Pueblo mm-hmm. just to grow corn for the peaky bread. And so young people are going, hey, we don't have to go out into this tortuous world. We can stay here and begin to go back, you know, the ancient new story. And I feel like it's why the indigenous world is so becoming so powerful now, because its story is very basic. It isn't full of bullshit. It's very basic. Relationship, respect the earth. It doesn't change. And I think so many people are seeing how valuable that is to hone in on. Because it isn't, it's not another story that's made up. It's really, and yet it's so incredibly, you know, complex. And complex, place, right? You know, but it's not complicated. And not yeah. complicated. Yeah, exactly. It's not. It's not. It's that difference between complicatedness and complex. Yeah. Um, it's not complicated. You know, it's simple, but complex, but beautiful, inexhaustibly right, um, <laughs> rich and and. Complex, simplex. Um, simplex, that's a good. <laughs> man, I, I, I just think that what a beautiful thought, and uh, I mean, such a simple, elegant uh, medicine for this um, loss of desire, loss of eros for the world, loss of any kind of joy, so why should I want to continue? Mm-hmm. So let me um, end my life. And it's not, of course, just among children we're seeing this now. I reckon we're going to be seeing that more and more, as is evidenced just you know, a couple of days ago in California. Just grown people uh, without any erotic bond or, or uh, bond with the sensuous earth, um, oh, with life in its in, in its rich weirdness, I'm just mm-hmm. you know figuring. Okay, so there's no reason to hang out, and let me take as many others with me mm-hmm. uh, when I take myself out. Um, uh, and this is happening mm-hmm. all around the place now. I love that here. Just this simple notion of. Giving names and giving names at when the time is right, you know. But um, the importance that places also on something that that's so beautiful to me, which is the beauty of language and eloquence, um, or letting you know, shaping the breath, letting the wind speak, um, and yet the the name that you 
uh, chose as an example had wind in it. Uh, that the names that we should take care to give are names that bind our young people uh, or our elders, but to the more than human field. Um, because I, you know, I know so many dear brothers and sisters who are saying what it's about now is, is, is togetherness and being with one another and loving one another, but they're still leaving out um, the sun, the moon, the ground, the rock, the blue, and, um, and spider, and aspen, and coyote. And I, I, I'm just wondering if, I, and this has just been coming to me recently, I just sort of want to just start naming other than human beings kind of in any conversation I'm in, just, just to bring them into the conversation because I feel like they're disappearing. Because we're not... We're just forgetting that we're made of these things. And, and so I wanted to question just, just a tiny bit. You're calling all that the natural world. Um, I, I don't want to think of that as some... A, a special world or another world. I, I can, you know, I wonder: is there a way that we begin to feel that whether we're in, you know, out in the back country or up on the twenty-eighth floor of some skyscraper in the middle of Manhattan, we are in this more than human mysterium, mm. um, and we are related to all these other. Folks who were breathing out, for instance, the oxygen we're breathing in. That just seems, it seems one slight, you know, move that's wanting to begin to happen in our, in our, in the poetics of our work. Um, because it is a poetics. It's just as you were saying before, Charles, as things got, as the art got stripped away from craft and somehow poetry got stripped away from just speaking. And so now we think of poetry as something we just write for poetry anthologies to sit in books. But it's it's got to be about beginning to speak beautifully again. Or, you know, just beginning to speak as full-bodied creatures, sensuous human animals speaking to other sensuous animals rather than speaking in these highfalutin abstract terms that that make our listener or the person we're talking to have to crawl up out of their senses and live in their head in order to understand what we're saying. So, um, so poetics seems a big piece of it and language and, and the beauty of naming. Yeah. yeah. You've been listening to A New and Ancient Story with me, your host, Charles Eisenstein. To engage more deeply you can join our community on newandancientstory.net, where we have live chats, forums, meetups, and all kinds of other tools for collaboration. If you want to find out more about my work, then visit my website, charleseisenstein.net.